Good morning, guys. Um, so this morning we're going to be continuing in our series in Genesis. Uh, and this morning we're going to be in uh, uh, Genesis chapters 6 through 9. So it's a pretty large portion of scripture. Uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Noah and the ark. Um, so the story of Noah and the ark really is probably one of the most misunderstood stories in all of the Bible, um, and there's a broad spectrum of opinions on it. Uh, a lot of people, when they think of Noah in the ark, they think of uh, it almost like a, a children's story, and so like images like this, you know, come across their minds. So they're, you know, storybooks with smiling uh, animals, or this next one right here, and you know, you've got all the, all the animals on the boat, and they're all smiling and having a good time. And if you grew up in church, that was likely the kind of the image that you got of uh, the story of Noah and the ark. But you know, the reality of the story of Noah and the ark and the flood is that uh, the flood was a, a cataclysmic worldwide event in which real people actually died. Uh, it certainly is not a children's story. Uh, on the other hand, many people will point to a story in the Bible like the flood as a, a reason that they reject the God of the Bible, as a reason that they uh, reject Christianity. Uh, I've even heard people say things like, well, if that is what God is like, then I don't want to have anything to do with God. If God is a God who allows a worldwide flood, then I don't want anything to do with Him. But that perspective completely discounts the righteousness of God in judging the earth and the incredible mercy and grace of God that's displayed in this story. So really both perspectives, both extreme ends of the spectrum come up short when it comes to seeing what this passage is really about. And so remember last week we said that the Bible is one big story. And last week we looked at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And so uh, there's creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration. Those are kind of like the four uh, acts or the four scenes of the story of the Bible. And so last week we looked at the fall, and then we talked about how in Genesis chapter 4 all the way through Revelation chapter 20, that's kind of act 3. Uh, that unfolds the story of redemption. And so the story of Noah and the ark from Genesis chapter 6 to 9 reveals in part God's plan of redemption. So the flood narrative is a story of how God graciously saves sinners even through his righteous judgment. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I'm going to read parts of the story. And I'm going to tell parts of the story. We can't read all of Genesis 6 to 9. It's a very long uh, passage, uh, but we will read some of it. Uh, and then I will kind of fill in the blanks uh, on the parts that we don't read. Uh, and as we are going through the story, I want to point out three important truths uh, that we see in this story. Three important truths that this story is teaching us. Uh, those truths are, 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 are the following. The wickedness of the human heart is great. God, the righteous judge, will punish unrepentant sinners, and God graciously saves sinners who trust in Him. So those are the three truths we're going to look at one at a time. And once we've done that, then I want to show you how the story of Noah and the flood in isolation, if it were just taken by itself, is actually incomplete. 
Uh, If the story just stopped at Genesis chapter 9, it would not be good news. But this story actually points to a greater story in the New Testament. Uh, And we're going to see what that story is uh, as we go through. So let's go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 9 to 22 in Genesis chapter 6. Here's what the Word of God says. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with the lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you, God, for um, just what your word teaches us about who you are and about how we can know you. Um, Lord, uh, there are some incredible truths in this story. There are some difficult truths in this story. God, I pray that you would help us to listen. I pray that you would give us soft and humble hearts. God, I pray uh, that you would change us by your word. I pray that you would show us, God, the gravity of our sin, uh, the glory of your holiness and the magnitude of your mercy and grace that's so clearly on display here in this passage and all throughout uh, scripture. God, I pray that you would help me as I preach. I desperately need your help to rightly divide the word of truth. God, apart from you, I can do nothing. I pray, God, that even now as as, as I am preaching the sermon and as this message is, is being recorded, God, I thank you for the technology that makes it possible for us to do this. I thank you for the fact, God, that you have created a, a technology that can carry the sound of my voice in, into the homes of people that are watching this. And I pray that as your word is spoken out loud, that God, your word would come in power, that it would accomplish all for which you've purposed it. God, that it would not return void. 
I pray, God, that if anybody is watching right now, uh, God, whoever is watching that doesn't know you, who's not born again, that today would be the day of salvation. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict of sin and that you would open up eyes to see the grace of Jesus, to see the truth that is in Jesus, to see that Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. God, please just be pleased to use um, us in our weakness. Be pleased to use me in my weakness and use our weak attempts at trying to do an online worship service, God, to get glory for yourself. God, I pray that you'd be glorified even through um, uh, all of this. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first truth that this passage teaches us is that the wickedness of the human heart is great. The wickedness of the human heart is great. Uh, So the scene that's kind of set at the beginning of this story is not good. Uh, The earth is corrupt and it's filled with violence is what we're told. Actually, if we go back a couple of verses earlier in Genesis 6, in in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That's some very strong language there. It says the wickedness was great. Every intention of his heart was only evil continually. So there's, it's, uh, you know, as Moses is writing this, he's uh, bending over backwards to use every adjective and adverb that he can to try to uh, describe just how pervasive wickedness had become upon the face of the earth. God had commissioned man to be fruitful and multiply his image across the earth. But notice what's happening. God's image is not being multiplied across the earth. Evil is being multiplied across the face of the earth in Genesis chapter 6, so much so that it grieved God to his heart and God regretted that he had made man. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, that was then. The heart of man isn't that wicked today. I mean, we're not that bad today. Uh, there's a, a, a biblical doctrine called total depravity, and Thomas and I actually talked about this uh, a good bit on Theology Thursdays. If you if you were able to tune into Theology Thursday, uh, then you already see have already seen that. If you haven't, you should go on our Facebook page and you can look up our Facebook Live from this past Thursday and check it out. And we took a deep dive into it. But essentially, total depravity means that by nature we are unable to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because of the fall, which we talked about last week, we're born into sin. We are born with a predisposition towards resisting God. Romans 8 says that the flesh is hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So in our flesh, in and of ourselves, we are unable to please God. We, we have this natural bent towards resisting Him. Uh, David says in Psalm 51, 5, he says, Oh God, I was born in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David's not saying that it's bad that he was born, and he's not saying that um, he's as bad as he possibly could be. Uh, Total depravity means that by nature we're bent towards rebellion. And and that's what evil is, really, when you think about it. Evil is 
is anti-God. It's whatever is opposed to God. R.C. Sproul summarizes it like this. He says, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And there are degrees of wickedness too. There is a point at which God's patience with unrepentant sin runs out. We see this later on in Genesis when uh, God comes down to see the level of wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, he says in Genesis chapter 19, verse 20 and 21, he says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. So the wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah was so blatant and so out of control that God could no longer bear it. He could no longer put up with it anymore. And that's what we see happening here in Genesis chapter 6. Every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. Now, we shouldn't have any illusions that we're any better off or that we're doing any better uh, here today, that we're trending in a better direction, because we're not. I mean, just think about our current circumstances and where we stand as a society. Right now in the United States, thousands of babies are murdered every single day under the guise of health care. 3,000 a day, in fact. And not only does it happen, but it's, it's shouted. There's campaigns that celebrate it. It's flaunted. Sexual immorality is not just rampant, but it too is celebrated. And if you stand in the way of it or you speak up for righteousness, you'll be shouted down. Um, according to the most popular pornography website, uh, their site was visited 33.5 billion times in 2018 alone. 109 billion videos were downloaded on this site in 2018 alone, that's enough for 14 videos for every person on planet Earth. And many of these videos, by the way, are made uh, with, um, with women and with underage people uh, who are being exploited. Many of them are there against their own will. It helps perpetuate uh, sex trafficking. It helps perpetuate all sorts of vileness and wickedness across the Earth and the vast majority of our population is helping to fuel it and feed it by giving them clicks and by helping them increase their revenue. And even in other ways, you know, aside, uh, aside from sexual immorality, it's just think about the way that people talk to each other on social media. Go and look at the comments section on news articles and the way that people talk to each other is violent. It's vicious. And it's done as if there's, no, if, as if there's uh, impunity, like we can speak violence to each other with no consequences, like we can talk to each other however we want. We're truly in a, uh, a very similar situation as a society as we see in Genesis chapter 6. But we need to be careful uh, that we don't point the finger at the nation and agree together about how wicked everybody out there is and act like we are better than they are. And Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, after he gets done outlining how uh, the, you know, the, the world is suppressing the truth 
uh, of God and um, how God has given uh, sinners over to the lusts of their hearts. Then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You who judge others practice the same things. He says, Don't be so quick to condemn everyone else. You need to look at yourself. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says things like, If you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. He says, if you're angry with someone and you curse at them, you are guilty of murder. Righteousness has nothing to do with outward appearances or how much better you are than your neighbor. Righteousness isn't measured according to your own standard, but God's. So it really doesn't matter if you think that you're a good person. It only matters what God says, and according to God's standard of righteousness, every single one of us falls far short. The law of God, the purpose for which we were created says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And none of us does that perfectly. None of us can say that we have, except for Jesus. Jesus is the only person who ever walked planet Earth who can say, I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I loved my neighbor as myself. You know, even the smallest acts of disobedience warrant God's righteous judgment because our sin is against a righteous and holy God. You know, any time you disobey God in the slightest, you're essentially saying to God, my way is better than your way, God. Your law doesn't apply to me. You can't tell me what to do. I can do what I want. Now, most of you who are you know, listening to this sermon right now would probably never like actually stand before God and say that, right? But That's what we're implicitly saying whenever we knowingly disobey God's word, even if it's something small, even if it's a, you know, making a vow or a promise and refusing to keep it, or if it's telling a white lie, we're deciding, God, my way is better than your way. And I know what your word says, but I'm going to do this anyways, because this is what I want to do. It's just so clear Guys, that we are all in need of God's grace to save us. Just And luckily, uh, God is a gracious God, and we're going to see how he's going to save Noah and his family here in a moment. But the point is, is that uh, every single one of us, the wickedness of the human heart is great. That's the first thing that this passage teaches us. And the second truth that this passage teaches is that God, the righteous judge, will punish unrepentant sinners. God, the righteous judge, will punish unrepentant sinners. So, again, the wickedness of man had gotten so bad in Genesis chapter 6 that in verse 6, God says, it says that God was grieved to his heart and he had regretted that he made man. And then verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, does that mean that God made a mistake? It, when What does it mean when it says that God regretted that he had made man or that he was sorry that he had made them? Well, no, of course, it doesn't mean that God made a mistake because we know that 
clearly from uh, just the rest of the witness of Scripture that God doesn't make mistakes. It would be against God's very nature to make mistakes. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, the Lord says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So, not only does God know what will happen ahead of time, he actually plans and ordains in advance everything that's going to happen ahead of time. So God does not make mistakes. Nothing surprises God because everything happens according to his purpose, and he's not obligated to explain himself to anyone. The reason that we, you know, we see things like the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart is that the Bible often uses what's called anthropomorphic language to sort of bring God to our level. So it will ascribe uh, human characteristics to God so that as humans, we can uh, get a small grasp on the supernatural. Um, God is transcendent. He's holy. He's indescribable. Words cannot accurately describe. We can't fully fathom what God is like. Uh, God is spirit. And so uh, God kind of helps us get a grasp on a little bit of what he's like uh, in Scripture by using anthropomorphic language. So uh, Scripture will say something like God upholds us with his righteous right hand. That doesn't mean that God has a literal right hand that he's holding us up with right now. It's uh, language that's meant to convey to us that God is sustaining us by his strength. Uh, And so when we read that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and that it grieved him to his heart, uh, what scripture is trying to emphasize there is that it's it's emphasizing that God hates sin. He loathes wickedness. It is so opposed to his character and to his nature that he cannot bear it. It grieves him. He's just, it tears him up inside. It's kind of what scripture is trying to to say here. And uh, his righteousness demands that he eradicate evil and evildoers. And the wickedness was so great by the time we get to Genesis 6 that God decided to destroy the earth with a flood. We see there in verse 13, God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. So that's exactly what God did. God sent a flood and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Listen to Genesis 7, 19 to 23 as it describes kind of the culmination of this flood. Uh, so after Noah and his family and his family had gotten into the boats, uh, into the ark, they'd made it. Uh, the flood waters have started. And in verse 19 of chapter 7, we read that the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. So these verses describe the totality of God's judgment. Everything that had breath died except for Noah, seven members of his family, uh, two of each kind of animal, and then the fish, obviously. What's happening here in Genesis chapter 7 is it's, it's a reversal of the created order. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, when God had completed his act of creation, he looked and he said, Behold, it is very good. By the time we get to chapter 6, sin has so corrupted creation, it has so corrupted mankind that God is grieved to his heart. So uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God made a separation between the waters of the waters. The, The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He spoke order into the chaos. And what do we see in Genesis chapter 7? The waters now once again cover the face of the earth. There's there's no longer a separation between the waters and the land. The chaos has resumed. In other words, God has uh, undone creation and he is starting over. He's wiped it out and he's starting over. The lesson here is clear. God will punish unrepentant sinners. And it's not just that God is is punishing sin here. He's also, he's cleansing the earth in this flood. He is making a new start. He is starting afresh and starting anew by wiping away the rampant wickedness that was out of control. Because remember, God had created man to glorify him. God had created man in his image to go be fruitful and multiply his image across the face of the earth. That's why creation existed. And in reality, the exact opposite was happening. Evil and wickedness was being perpetuated across the face of the earth, unchecked and out of control. And so God cleansed the earth of the wickedness and of the sin that was running so rampant. Now, there are many people today who would reject this truth that God will punish unrepentant sinners. Uh, who see this as incompatible with the love of Jesus. And some say that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God and uh, that the God of the New Testament is kind and merciful and loving and, and they're just incompatible. They're, they, there's two different uh, gods in the Old and the New Testament. But these objections come with some assumptions built in and really they're invalid assumptions. The first assumption Uh, that people who have these objections, uh, I think, have is that uh, people are generally good. Uh, There's oftentimes this assumption that people are generally good and that they're deserving of God's blessing and God's provision, that that we deserve that as a a, a right. But we've already dealt with that one earlier in the sermon. We've talked about how the wages of sin is death. The wage is something that we earn. So what we have earned by our consistent rebellion against God, by our uh, propensity to turn away from God and worship and serve the things that God's created rather than God, what we've earned from that is death. So we don't deserve God's blessing. We don't deserve things like that from God. What we actually deserve is death. And the fact that we're alive and we're drawing breath right now is actually evidence of God's incredible mercy. The second Assumption, the second invalid assumption um, that I think many have is that God has no right to take life. 
that it's morally wrong for God to take human life. But we don't sit in judgment over God. We are finite and we are limited in knowledge and wisdom. And Jeremiah 17 says the heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all things. So it is silly for people who have deceitful and fickle hearts to sit in judgment over God and to tell God what is unrighteous or what is righteous for him to do or what he's permitted to do. Psalm 115.3 says that God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God, the, 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 the potter has a right to do whatever he wants with the clay. We are the clay and God is the potter. And the third assumption is that there's no mercy in the Old Testament and there's no wrath in the New Testament. But God extended great patience in the days of Noah. Second Peter chapter 2 describes Noah as a herald of righteousness. So you just think about the scene in that day. It would have taken Noah years to build this boat, to build this ark. And as he's building this enormous structure, people would have come and they would have seen Noah building this. They would have asked him why he's building this. And, and Noah would have told people about the flood that's coming. And, and he was a herald of righteousness. He told people there's a flood coming, but people didn't listen. God extended great patience in the days of Noah. And he gave people an opportunity to repent, but they didn't listen. And in the New Testament, Jesus is very clear about judgment and the reality of hell. In fact, the entire point of Jesus going to the cross was to bear the wrath of God in the place of sinners. R.C. Sproul, um, I love this quote from, uh, from him. He says, The most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen in the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. The very wickedness that's so repulsive to God that he can't stand to bear it was laid upon Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. If anyone was unfairly punished, it was Jesus. If anyone didn't deserve the wrath of God, it was Jesus. But he bore it in our place so that guilty sinners don't have to. This was God's plan. And it's his plan because not only does God punish unrepentant sinners, but God graciously saves sinners who trust in him. And that's our third point. God graciously saves sinners who trust in him. Even through judgment, God shows mercy. God graciously chose to save Noah and his family by instructing Noah to build an ark and to get in it. In chapter 6, verse 8, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And then in verse 9, the next verse of chapter 6, it says that uh, Noah was a righteous man. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. It says that Noah walked with God. Now, this doesn't mean that Noah was sinless. It doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. We know he wasn't perfect, in fact, because we don't even get out of chapter 9 before we see Noah drunk and naked laying down in his tent. 
He's passed out in his tent. When the Old Testament talks about a righteous man, it's referring to uh, not a perfect person. It's referring to a sinner who admits his sin, hates his sin, turns to God in faith, and seeks to obey God's commands with God's help. David is is an example of this. Maybe you've read through the Psalms and you've seen a couple of the Psalms where David or the psalmist will appeal to their, the integrity of his heart or, or to my, my righteousness or their blamelessness. Um, so David says a couple of times in the Psalms that I'm blameless and I'm innocent. But obviously David did not think he was sinless. If you, you well, all you got to do is go read Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, and it's very clear that David was very aware of his sin, and he openly confessed his sin. He was open about his sin. So when it says that Noah was blameless and righteous, it's uh, what it means is that Noah feared God. Okay, uh, Noah was a sinner just like you and I are sinners. But Noah had regard for God and for God's word and for God's law. And Noah was grieved over his sin. And he, he didn't want to walk in rebellion against God. He had a desire to walk with God. And he did walk with God imperfectly uh, as it may have been. And God saved Noah by faith. The fact of the matter is that God saved Noah by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 says that by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So the reason that Noah was saved isn't because Noah was awesome, but because God is merciful and made a way for Noah to be saved, and Noah believed God. Noah trusted God. He, he believed God's word when God said, judgment is coming, but do this to be saved. And he did it. He acted out on his faith. And through the salvation of Noah, God showed his faithfulness and his mercy. I mean, you think about the faithfulness of God here. The, the very promise of God and the very character of God was at stake in the flood. If God were to wipe out all of humanity, what is to become of God's promise that we looked at last week when he told uh, the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head? What would become of that promise if all of humanity was wiped out? And so by saving Noah and his family, God preserved the seed of the woman, showing and proving that God is a faithful God who does keep his promises. Yes, he is a God of justice, and yes, he will punish sin, but he is a faithful God, and he's also a merciful God. He's merciful because he didn't make a full end to the earth, though he had every right to do so. He's merciful because he passed over Noah's sin and over the sin of Noah's family. We know that because as soon in chapter 8, as soon as Noah gets off the boat, you know what the first thing that he does is? He offers a sacrifice of burnt offering to God, a sacrifice of atonement for his own sin. So clearly, God's mercy shines through. Instead of making a full end of the earth, God starts over with Noah with a remnant. And he recommissioned Noah and his sons just like he had commissioned Adam. Listen to chapter 9, verse 1. After Noah and his family, the floodwaters have resided. Um, they, it's been, uh, it's, 
They were on the boat for about a year. You want to talk about quarantine, by the way, like that would be a rough quarantine. You can't even like go to the park and go for a walk. They were stuck on a boat with a bunch of animals for an entire year. Uh, that would have been quite the quarantine. So it's been a year. The waters have subsided um, and they exit the boat and God blesses Noah. He recommissions him in verse one. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? Yes. That, I mean, that should uh, cause us to hearken back to Genesis chapter one, where God told Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? With my image, God's saying. So God is starting over with Noah and his family. But the problem is that even though Noah loved God, like we said, Noah was a sinner and Noah's sons were sinners. And it didn't take long for the world to descend right back into sin. Like I said, uh, later in chapter nine, Noah's passed out drunk and naked in his tent pronounces a curse on one of his son's uh, uh, lineage, on the lineage of Canaan. Uh, and then two chapters later in Genesis 11, the pride of man has become so great at the Tower of Babel that God has to confuse the language of the earth to disperse people because their pride and their defiance against God was already out of control. And we're not even two chapters removed from the flood. So God's purpose of filling the earth with his glory through multiplying image bearers still wasn't fulfilled. Sin is continuing to persist even after the flood. So this begs the question, was God's reset a failure? The answer to that question is no, because the story of Noah and the flood isn't meant to stand alone. I love what John Piper says. He says, the story of Noah and the ark cries out for an epilogue. The story of Noah and the flood only makes sense in the context of all of Scripture. This story of God's mercy through judgment is meant to point us to an even greater story of God's mercy through judgment. And it's the story of the gospel. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament saw the flood as pointing to the final judgment when Jesus would return. And they saw the ark as pointing to salvation in Jesus Christ. What God has done for guilty sinners in Christ is much greater than what he did for Noah. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So the vile wickedness of sin that's so repulsive to God that he can't even bear to be near it was placed on Jesus Christ. Jesus bore the filth of our sin. Everyone who places their faith in Jesus is forgiven of their sin and they are saved from the ju coming judgment of God upon sin. Here's how uh, Peter, the apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey God when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, 
but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot there, and I don't, I don't want you to get bogged down, and we can talk more about that passage in the Q&A uh, afterwards, uh, but let me show you the main point here in this passage, okay? Noah's family was brought safely through the waters of judgment by getting into the ark, while those who refused to listen to Noah's warnings perished. And in the same way, those who repent and trust in Jesus are baptized and are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ will be brought safely through the fire of God's coming judgment. The only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is our ark. And to get in, you need to admit your own sinfulness and inability to be saved. You need to confess your guilt to God. You need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and that he rose from the dead. You can do that today right where you are, right in your home. You can confess your sin to God. You can make the decision to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf. That when Jesus died, he was punished for your sins. And that when he rose from the dead because you've trusted in him, you too will also be raised from the dead. I urge you not to wait or to put this off. Now, Jesus even compared the days of Noah to the last days before his coming. In Luke chapter 17, verse 26 and 27, he said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus said that just like in Noah's day before the flood, people will be carrying on, not caring about what God thinks or about righteousness or about crazy people like Noah warning them to repent. There's partying to be done. There's success to be achieved and pleasures to be enjoyed. The world doesn't have time for God. The world doesn't have time to think about repentance. But friends, that day is coming and just like the flood in Noah's day, it will be shocking both in its suddenness and its scale. What Jesus wants us to learn from the story of Noah and the flood is that you should make it your top priority to prepare for judgment day. And you don't do that by trying to be a good person or by trying to improve your life. If you leave here thinking that that's what this has been all about, then you've missed the point. The point of this is not to scare you into being a better person. The point of this is not to scare you, period. The point of this is to, to, to let you know that there is a real judgment day coming, that there is a reckoning for our sin. And the answer is not to try to improve yourself. It's not to better your life. It's to recognize that you can't. You are utterly hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. You must throw yourself upon him, cast yourself upon his righteousness. He's your only hope. He's the only door into the ark. There is no other way to be saved. You must trust in Jesus. And if, if anything, during this time when we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, it's just another reminder that this life is fleeting, that our lives are fragile, that it's coming to an end. This isn't the apocalypse. Coronavirus is not the apocalypse, but it should serve as a warning to us that Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet him? My hope and prayer is that through this sermon, you would get a glimpse of the magnitude of God's kindness and his mercy. 
Romans 2, 4 says, says, Do you despise the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God is incredibly patient. Despite all the rampant wickedness going on in the world today, he continues to give breath. Despite all the things that you have done, he continues to sustain you. If you have not trusted in Jesus, why would you keep waiting? If you're a believer this morning, I want you to be encouraged. Noah trusted and obeyed God and warned others of the coming flood for years. And Noah's preaching must have sounded foolish. And maybe my preaching this morning sounds foolish to some who are listening. Maybe there are some who are going to listen and think, nah, that's foolishness. I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid of judgment day. I'm not afraid of those things. And there were many people in Noah's day who said the same things. And scripture tells us that the gospel message is foolish to the world. They hear talk of a crucified king who died a humiliating death, naked and tortured, and they shake their heads. They hear that Jesus is the only way to God and the only truth, and they're enraged. They hear of the resurrection of the dead, and they roar with laughter. But 1 Corinthians one twenty one says that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So the same message that many mock is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, for those who have faith like Noah's. In these days of global pandemic, let's gently but earnestly warn people of coming judgment and tell them of the great salvation found in Jesus Christ. And let's start with our neighbors. Uh, One of the practical things you can do is download the Love Your Neighbor bingo card that we've got out. You can find it on the resources tab on our website and we'll put it in the comments section if you haven't yet. And begin to, to do some of those acts of loving kindness. Begin to uh, interact with your neighbors and take the opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, to talk to them about the mercy of God and how God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. What a great message of hope in the midst of a global pandemic or that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What an incredible message of hope for those who are uneasy, for those who are nervous about the prospect of meeting God, who don't know where they stand with God. There is good news for the world. There's good news for our neighbors. God has providentially made it to where we don't have big church-wide outreach events. Guess what the outreach event is for this month? It's your neighborhood. The outreach event is the people that live on your left and on your right and across the hall or across the street. The people that uh, you're, you know, connected with at work. That's your outreach event. So I'd encourage you to do that. So the story of Noah in the flood teaches us that the wickedness of man is great. It teaches us that God, the righteous judge, will punish unrepentant sinners And it teaches us that God graciously saves sinners who trust in Him. I want to close from a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that I'd like you now to pray along with me uh, that's on the screen as we close. 
Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made, and you forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.